Well, this morning we are focusing on the birth of Christ, and we're going to be doing that from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So find Matthew 1 in your Bible if you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning. Uh, just find Matthew 1, and then let's stand together in honor of the Word of God. Let's read it. Matthew 1, beginning of verse 18, it says this, now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we think about the, the Christmas story, and we've heard it so many times, and yet, Lord, it never loses its wonder. It never loses uh, a sense of amazement that uh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, put on human flesh and dwelt in our midst and became one of us so that he could be um, tempted in every way we are tempted yet without sin and live that perfect holy life for us so that he could become our substitute on the cross and redeem us and purchase us a place in heaven forever. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for your precious gift. And, Lord, it's that that we celebrate this time of year. And, Lord, as we think about your great gift of your son, we also know that we can be part of giving the gift of missions, the, the gospel around the world, that we can be part of helping to build your kingdom. And Lord, we want to be that we want to be used of you in that way as well. So, Lord, we pray that you would just uh, be with us as we consider again the Christmas stories. We consider the incarnations. We consider the miracle of the virgin birth that we might uh, um, just give you thanks and praise. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here in this place today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that perhaps today would be the day they would put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And Lord, we thank you for the wondrous Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. The heart of what we celebrate at Christmas is that God came down. The God who by the very movement of his lips spoke into existence all that has ever been, condescended to become one of us. 
Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25, describe the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The virgin birth is one of the most important doctrines in Christianity. It was affirmed by those at the very beginning of the church. Justin Martyr, who was born shortly after the last New Testament apostle was martyred, wrote in A.D. 140, The virgin birth is a universal belief to be accepted by everyone calling himself a Christian. Irenaeus in A.D. 190, said, The Christian church, scattered over the whole world, received from the apostles the faith in the virgin birth. In fact, for the first 17 centuries after the birth of Christ, the vast majority of those professing Christianity accepted the virgin birth of Christ without question. But more recently, primarily due to liberal scholarship, it has come under attack in many quarters, ecclesiastical as well as secular. Belief in the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ is sometimes considered unworthy of 21st century intelligence. Biologically and scientifically, such a birth is understood as impossible and therefore must be rejected as an embellishment of religious expectations or as a leftover from pagan beliefs in supernatural births. That's what they tell us. This is the message over which the rationalists stumble, by which the humanists are offended, at which the liberals scoff, and at which the New Agers are perplexed. And yet, we know this is really nothing new. The people in Jesus' day also had a hard time believing the virgin birth. In Matthew twenty-two forty-two, Jesus asked the Pharisees, What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? You see, the Jews were more than willing to see Jesus as the son of David, but they had a very difficult time understanding him as the Son of God. Therefore, they denied the virgin birth. And people in every age have struggled with believing in the virgin birth. Now, we might expect that the unchurched would question this belief, as a recent Barna survey shows only 53% of unchurched people believe in the virgin birth of Christ. That should not surprise us. But how do we explain the statistics that show even those preparing for the ministry deny the virgin birth? Several years ago, Red Book Magazine took a poll of Protestant seminary students and found that over 56% did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. This is, folks, the heritage of liberal theological scholarship. Even in one of our own SBC seminaries back in 1976, only 61% of the students said they believed in the virgin birth. Now, that was back when our convention was controlled by liberals, but still, those are shocking statistics. One poll 
of 7,441 Protestant clergy yielded the following results. These ministers do not believe in the virgin birth. Lutherans, 19%. American Baptists, 34%. Episcopalians, 44%. Presbyterians, 49%. And Methodists, 60%. A good summary of this would be that 30 to 43% of all Protestants do not believe that Christ was virgin born. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but for me, that is incredible. Folks, listen, don't ever base your theology on popular opinion. Truth is not determined by majority rule. The majority may be wrong. It doesn't really matter if 100% do not believe in the virgin birth. That does not mean it is not true. In Romans 3, 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul said, If some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Listen, if everyone else in the world says there's no such thing as the virgin birth, but God says there is, I'm going to believe God. And I agree with J. Vernon McGee at this point, he says, I have never objected to a person saying that they do not believe in the virgin birth. People have a right not to believe. But I have a real hard time with a preacher that does not believe in the virgin birth. He ought to be selling insurance or something else. McGee goes on to say, I also have a hard time with people saying that the Bible does not teach the virgin birth. The only Jesus that we have any historical record of is the one who was virgin born. The record clearly states that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Now, liberal theologians have made the assertion that the New Testament writers really never claim that Jesus was virgin born. But folks, it is amazing to me that anyone would ever take such a foolish position in light of Matthew chapter 1. I can't understand how people may choose to reject the biblical account, but I can't understand how anyone could ever claim that the Bible does not teach the virgin birth. It is as clear as day. John MacArthur says, those who deny the virgin birth are those who just ignore that truth. But if we will simply open our eyes and look at Matthew 1, we find that we cannot be honestly objective and still doubt it, deny it, or ignore it because it is clearly there. Now, someone might ask, well, how important is it that we believe in the virgin birth? Does it really matter whether Jesus was born of a virgin or not? And the answer to that is, it makes all the difference in the world. I believe that the virgin birth is one of the most important doctrines in Christianity. Dr. John Wolvert, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, says, The incarnation of Jesus Christ of which the virgin birth is the foundational element, 
is the central fact of Christianity. Upon it, the whole superstructure of Christian theology depends. The doctrine of the virgin birth is of paramount importance. If there was not a virgin birth, then Jesus is not the Messiah. And if he is not the Messiah, there is no salvation. MacArthur says the virgin birth is an essential doctrine because if Jesus had an earthly father, then the Bible's not trustworthy because the Bible clearly states he did not have one. And if Jesus was simply born of human parents, there is no way really to describe his supernatural life. You see, his virgin birth and his substitutionary death and his bodily resurrection, as well as his ascension and his ultimate second coming, are all part of a package of deity. You cannot have one without the others. And every aspect of his deity is inseparable from the others. In fact, it is interesting that those in history who have denied the virgin birth are those who have had trouble believing in the pre-existence of Christ. If you believe that Christ has eternally existed with the Father, then it's not really too difficult to believe that He then stepped into human history for a while in human flesh. The virgin birth is really not difficult for those who believe in the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. I've also found that people who believe in Genesis 1-1 have no trouble with the miracle of virgin birth. If we can believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then we will have no problem believing that God can perform this miracle as well. The first man got here without a mother or father. And if God can create a man without a mother or a father, then surely he can bring a man into the world through a virgin woman. And I don't know about you, but I believe in a supernatural Christianity, which presents a supernatural Christ who had a supernatural birth, a supernatural death, rose in a supernatural resurrection, and who is coming again in a supernatural manner. And I believe that to discredit the virgin birth is not only to strike at the very heart and nature of Christ, but also at the very power of God. I mean, why should we have difficulty believing that an omnipotent God could do something like this? The birth of a baby is nothing really unusual. But the Bible says when Jesus was born, he was born of a virgin. There has never been a birth like that. Jesus is the only baby ever born that had an earthly mother, but no earthly father. He had a heavenly father, but no heavenly mother. He's the only baby ever born who was older than his mother and at the same time, at the same age as his eternal father. But the bottom line, folks, 
is if Jesus was born like everybody else, then he's not eternal God. And if he's not God, then his claims are false and salvation is a hoax because then he can never pay the penalty for our sin. And if he is not eternal God, we are looking for his return in vain. You see, every aspect of his claim to deity rests upon the certainty of the virgin birth. Well, let's look a little more closely at this passage of Scripture this morning. The first thing that we see here is the conception. Look with me again at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. What a miraculous birth Jesus had. And I hope that we have not heard it so many times that we cease to be amazed at the miraculous wonder of the virgin birth and how amazing it really is. You know, there have been some amazing births in history, but there has never been a birth like this one. As one author put it, the God who brought forth a motherless woman named Eve from the body of a man named Adam brought forth a fatherless man named Jesus from the body of a woman named Mary. Now, Matthew seems to state it so matter-of-factly that it tends to minimize the wonder of it all. The Bible says, Mary, can you believe it? Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. The very same Holy Spirit, that same creative power that brooded over the chaos and brought order at the dawn of creation, was the same person of the Trinity who ushered the life of the eternal Christ into the body of Mary for the miracle of the ages known as the Incarnation. Folks, that only happened one time in human history. The supernatural birth of Jesus Christ is the indelible mark of his deity. One author wrote, He who never began to be, but eternally existed, and who continued to be what he eternally was, began to be what he eternally was not. That's the incarnation. The apostle John put it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the early 19th century, the world was anxiously watching the advances of Napoleon, And everyone's mind was focused on war. But during that time, there were some babies being born. In 1809, halfway between the Battle of Trafalgar and Waterloo, William E. Gladstone was born in Liverpool. Alfred Lord Tennyson was born in Somersby. Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Boston. Felix 
Mendelssohn was born in Hamburg. And Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky. All in the same year. People's minds were preoccupied with war, not babies. And yet, now, more than 200 years later, which do you think made the greatest impact on history? It was the birth of those babies, not the wars, that made the greatest contribution. And yet, those babies born in 1809 were just a drop in the bucket compared to the difference that the birth of a baby in Bethlehem made 2,000 years ago. May we never lose the wonder and the significance of that miraculous birth. Now, this may be review for some of you, but Matthew uses a word here that we're not too familiar with. Because the marriage customs were very different in those days from what we're used to today. But in order to really understand the impact of what really took place here, we need to understand some of these differences. There were three stages of marriage in those days. First of all, there was the engagement. The engagement was often made by the parents when the children were very, very small. And most often it was made without the boy and the girl ever having seen one another. Marriage was seen as something far too serious to be left to the dictates of the human heart. So the parents would get together and they would arrange the marriage. Then there was the betrothal. The betrothal period was a time when the couple would enter into the ratification of the marriage agreement. And it was at this time that they were first called husband and wife, even though they would not live together for one full year. And this was intended to show the purity of the bride, in other words, that she was not pregnant, before they would enter into physical union uh, with each other as husband and wife. The betrothal was legally binding, and once you entered the betrothal period, the marriage could only be terminated by divorce. Now, that may seem strange to us, but that is how things were done in the days of the New Testament. And it's because of this betrothal period that we see a phrase that would be very strange to us today. And that is a girl who is called a virgin who is a widow. And that would be the case if the man died during the betrothal period. But getting back to the biblical account, it is at this stage in the marriage that Mary is found to be pregnant. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. And if Joseph wished to end the marriage, he would have to divorce her even though they had not entered into any kind of physical union. And then, of course, there was the marriage proper. This was the time when the husband would take the wife to live in his home, and they would be married as we know of marriage today. And by the way, this really helps us to understand the second coming of Christ, because it is described in Scripture as the bridegroom coming for the bride, the church, 
at the end of the waiting period to take us to live with him. And there are many corollaries to this understanding of marriage that can be seen in the Revelation, but that's another sermon. Understand these customs. And knowing how they did things back then, it's very easy to see the problem for Mary and Joseph here. And let's not forget the humanness of Mary and Joseph here in the Christmas story. And just because God sent an angel to tell them that this was all his plan does not mean that they did not struggle with this matter. I mean, can you imagine the kind of emotions and questions that must have been in Joseph's heart? Has Mary been unfaithful to me? What will the people in the community think? What must I do about this situation? Bill Counts, in his book, More Than a Carpenter, writes, The wedding guests laughed uneasily, but their jokes could not relieve the tension of the evening. The normal trappings of a normal wedding were there, the songs, the ceremony, the best wine, the joyous looks, the loving looks between the young bride and groom. But in the courtyard corners, the old women were busily engaged in gossiping that the bride was pregnant. Now, pregnant brides don't seem to be that big a deal in our liberal culture today. But this was 4 B.C. in a little town called Nazareth where piety reigned and Jewish girls were super secluded and most never even got past their front doors on chaperones. And when you read Matthew 1, it seems as if one thing happened right after the other, but Luke tells us that there was a period of three months in between the time that Mary became pregnant and the time that Joseph found out about it. Mary went to see her cousin, Elizabeth, and when she returned, it was becoming obvious that she was with child. Do you think the townspeople knew what was going on? Now, if you don't think so, you've never lived in a small rural town. People know when you clean your glasses in a small town like this. If you take an evening drive, they know when you left, where you went, and when you got back, right? So there is no doubt word is beginning to spread. All but there's one person that does not yet know. How can she tell Joseph? Would he believe what the angel had told her? How could he? And that brings us to the next part of the story, which is the confrontation. Look at verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. I think one of the reasons that I personally am drawn to Matthew's description of the birth of Christ is that it, it seems to give the story from Joseph's perspective. Luke gives more of Mary's side on this. But being a man, I think I can easily identify with some of Joseph's struggles here. 
Joseph must have been, first of all, shocked, then hurt, then disappointed, and probably even angered. What should he do about this situation? It was indeed a very difficult decision for him. Joseph must have been wondering, what am I going to do here? He couldn't believe that Mary would have been unfaithful to him. Now, since we're not really part of that culture anymore, we don't understand the options that Joseph had, but he had three options. First of all, Mary could have been stoned to death. Deuteronomy 22 makes it clear that the penalty for sleeping with a virgin betrothed to another man was death by stoning for both the woman and the man. And there was a period in the history of Israel where this would have been Joseph's only option and Mary, no doubt, would have been put to death. But over time, this had changed and Most often, this would not be the case in the days of the New Testament. But there was another possibility that was fairly likely in Joseph's time. She could have been publicly humiliated. Good Jews would often show their zeal and their righteousness by publicly divorcing their unfaithful wives in a public court. And since the Bible says that Joseph was a righteous man, that means that he had some strong convictions about purity in marriage. By the way, I'm glad that Joseph had strong convictions about the sanctity of marriage. I wish more people today had similar convictions about what God's Word says about the purity of marriage. But that's another sermon as well. I'm trying not to chase rabbits. But in tension with his convictions and his commitment to obey the laws of God, Joseph also was a man of compassion. And he sincerely loved Mary, and he did not want to hurt her in any way. J. Vernon McGee says, A hot-headed man would immediately have had her stoned to death or would have had her made of her a public example. But that's not what we see In the heart of Joseph. And you know, we often focus on the fact that Mary was the perfect choice by God to be the mother of Jesus. But we sometimes overlook the fact that Joseph was also God's choice. Had he not been the kind, gentle, godly man that he was, it could have turned out very differently. Of course, we know that Joseph chose what he thought was the best option he had, which was she could have been put away privately. He decided against disgracing her with a public divorce. He cared too much about her to do that. And in the battle between law and love, love won out. The love that he had for Mary led him to decide to divorce her before the minimum number of witnesses, which would have been two. He did not yet know that this pregnancy was unique. But that revelation came before he could make his final decision. And that leads us to the confirmation. To Joseph's surprise, God offered another option. 
Look at verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Bible says that in that atmosphere, as he was pondering what he should do, he had a dream. And in those days, it was not uncommon for God to communicate through dreams. This was still part of the old dispensation. But we have something far better than dreams today, of course. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. We have something far better than they had. We have the scriptures. We have God's word. Listen, you better not put too much stock in those dreams of yours. The Bible tells us God does not use that method of communicating his truth in this present age. You also might want to remember what you had to eat the night before. You know, maybe that anchovy pizza or, you know, that bowl of chili and banana malt that you had. Dreams, listen, are not a reliable way of knowing God's will in our day and time. But in that day, God revealed his truth to Joseph in a dream. And Matthew follows this by connecting this revelation with that which had been revealed by God through the prophet Isaiah more than 700 years before this. I mean, look at verse 22. Now, all this took place to fulfill what, the, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God wanted Joseph to know that what was happening was all part of his redemptive plan and that it had been promised for hundreds of years, as Isaiah 7:14 makes clear. Now, we won't be able to spend a lot of time on the titles that are given to our Lord here. But notice that he's referred to as Christ, which means Messiah, as Jesus, which means Savior, and as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus was a common name in those days. It is the New Testament form of the Old Testament name Joshua. It means God is Savior. And that's why he told Joseph to name him Jesus because he was coming to save his people from their sins. And all these titles are important here. Had he not been Emmanuel, God with us, he could not have been our Savior. And if he had not been virgin born, he could not have been God with us. But the Bible declares he was all of that. He is not only God with us, he's also Savior to anyone who will believe in him. Well, finally, we see the consummation 
Look with me at verse 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. As soon as Joseph woke up from his dream, he immediately obeyed the Lord. He didn't put it off. He didn't mull over it. He immediately went to do what God had given him to do. In fact, really, every time that an angel of God spoke to Joseph and revealed to him his will, every single time he always immediately did as he was directed. We see it here when the Lord told him to take Mary as his wife. We see it in Matthew 2 when he is directed to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. We see it again at the end of Matthew 2 when he's commanded to go back to Israel. And notice that we don't read of any questions asked at all. We don't see any demands. We don't see any inner struggles or any nights of wrestling with God until the will of God wins out. No, he simply obeyed immediately. And the question for us is, are we that responsive to the revealed will of God? The revealed truth of God given in Scripture, the more sure word of prophecy. Are we as quick to obey God's word as Joseph was? Understand also that Joseph was willing to obey God when he knew it was going to cost him something to do so. He violated all custom by immediately taking Mary into his home that, so that he could care for her. And he knew there would be all kinds of rumors and allegations hurled at him. But you see, Joseph knew the truth of God, and that's all he needed to know. What about us? Is that sufficient for us as well? Once we know what God's word says, is that enough? Are we just going to obey even when it costs a great deal? You know, it was customary in that day and time to name the first child after the father. But God had said his name was to be called Jesus because he was sent to save his people from their sins. And so when they began to write Joseph, he said, no, Jesus, Jesus. Joseph opened up his home and welcomed the Son of God in. And I believe that there was also a day when Jesus opened up his home to Joseph and said to him, well done, Good and faithful servant, enter into all the Father has prepared for you. Someone has said that Christmas means he descended that we might ascend. He was born that we might be born again. He became poor that we might become rich. He became a servant that we might become sons. He had no home so that we might have a home in heaven. He was made sin 
that we might be made righteous. He died that we might live eternally. He came down so that we could be caught up. Dr. Philip Brooks used to describe Christmas this way. He said, Christmas is when God came down the stairs of heaven holding a baby in his arms. That baby was the eternal Son of God. He came into the world to save sinners like us. Had our greatest need been information, he would have sent us an educator. Had our greatest need been money, he would have sent us an economist. Had our greatest need been technology, he would have sent a scientist. Had our greatest need been pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was salvation. So he sent us a Savior, born of a virgin, and his name is Jesus. Do you know him today? Is he your Savior? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would understand the message, what it's all about. The virgin birth, why it's so important that the eternal Son of God, coexisting with the Father, left the glories of heaven, put on human flesh, came and lived that perfect life without sin, died as a sinless substitute on the cross in our place, and because of that is able to give to us everlasting life for those who put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Lord, I pray there's anyone here today that's not yet done that. I pray they would do that today. And Lord, I pray the message would be so clear that your Holy Spirit would just reveal to us the truth of what you have given us in your word. And Lord, we thank you for that precious gift, gift of salvation through Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we worship, that our hearts would just be filled with gratitude that we would live for you, that we would serve you, that we would give to you our all because you're worthy. Lord, we pray that we would respond the way you want us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.